You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Glad you're all here and tuning in online. Today, um, we're going to be continuing, as we usually do, through our series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, today, we're actually going to be learning about the bad news of legalism and how it keeps us from embracing the, the freeing life of joy, of rest, of selflessness that we're meant to live out in the grace and love of Christ um, so please turn with me to Luke 5. We're going to be starting at verse 33, if you have your Bibles, Luke 5, 33. And we're going to actually be reading all the way to Luke 6, uh, verse 11. So it's a kind of a long passage this morning, so uh, bear with me. But actually, you know, as we're reading the passage, just really try to, to humble yourself, center yourself on God and what the Lord is, is speaking to you through the passage. Um, long or not, we should always be doing that, right? And before we read it, though, I just want to set up the scene. You might remember last week, Jesus had called a new disciple, uh, a tax collector named Levi, who instantly left everything to follow Jesus. And then, and then he hosted a banquet with his, all his tax collector friends to celebrate and meet with Jesus. And the Pharisees, of course, they're unhappy about this situation. And this is where we begin at the narrative. Luke 5, 6 to 11. Then the Pharisees said to Jesus, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts the new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. And then later on a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat? He even gave some to those who were with him. And then he told them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life? Or to destroy it. After looking around at them all, he told him, Stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus.
All right, so for good or ill, um, I'm a rule follower. I follow the rules. In fact, just the other day, I was pulling into a gas station when I noticed a sign that said, wrong way. I hadn't realized it was one of those gas stations that only let you drive in from one direction, right? You know what I'm talking about. So slightly annoyed uh, of this dumb rule, but because of my inclination to follow the rules, I drove around the parking lot and towards the gas pump at the proper direction. Good for me, right? Pat myself on the back for being a really good upstanding citizen. But right before I pulled in, another car sped into the lane from the opposite side, the wrong side, and even pulled up to the exact pump that I was about to go to. And I'm not going to lie. I got a little upset at the fact that I made all this extra effort to follow the rules, and yet these people who ignored them got first dibs to the pump. And, and not only that, the employee at the gas station didn't inform them of their error, but greeted them with a friendly hello and a have a nice day. And, I, and, and if I'm honest, and I will be, in that moment, I was a, I was a little upset. My, my adherence to the rules of that gas station actually made me feel morally superior in that moment and therefore justified in both judging and looking down on and shaking my head at those jerks for breaking the rules and taking my spot. We've all been there, right? Um, unfortunately, though, I have to admit that, that my actions there were, were a prime example of one of the many telltale signs of having a legalistic and morally self-righteous attitude. And I actually think God put me in that position for two reasons. First, to make me aware of some self-righteousness still lingering within my heart so I could repent of it. And secondly, a second reason, so, so I could have a good example for my message this morning. I'm just kidding about the second one. But still, it certainly was timely and very applicable. Because in the passage we read, right, we can see the Pharisees exhibiting pretty much the same attitude toward Jesus and his disciples, right? In three separate but similar occasions, we, we, we see them acting like I did, right? L last week, um, though, we learned about the Pharisees, right? And we, we learned how they believed their, their current oppression under Roman rule was a result of the collective sin of Judea. And so they believed that in order to get God to reestablish their na nation uh, as his kingdom, everyone had to return to obedience to the law. So this belief system caused them to not only be strict adherence to the law themselves, but they also became a type of morality police to everyone else, you know, telling everyone what they should be doing, right? But my guess is that as we start to discuss their issues of, of legalism and self-righteous attitudes, I, I think we can expect the Holy Spirit to be doing a lot more of that type of con convicting in our hearts as well. So let's, let's just be open to that. And, and I want to remind you that conviction of God isn't meant to shame us, but to help us realize the sin and, and, and old nature which we're still clinging to precisely so that we can repent of it, ultimately so that we can grow into and fully embrace the new life which Jesus freely gives us. That's a process of sanctification. And we'll go through that this morning that is, if we're actually willing to receive what the Lord has for us with humility. As Jesus says to the Pharisees in the passage, we'll never be willing to taste the new wine if we're convinced that the old wine tastes better. 
right? That's like stubbornness. And in and, and most cases, old wine does taste better, I, so I've heard. But <laughs> I can't tell the difference. But, but this, is, this is the one case in which new wine is much sweeter and fuller and tastier. It's, it's the wine of the new covenant given to us by God through the grace and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But, but here's the problem. If we can't admit we're broke, we ain't going to want to get fixed, right? Audrey's been watching a show from Laurel, Mississippi and house renovations. They all talk like that. So it just came out. We can't admit we're broke or we ain't going to want to get fixed, right? It's like, it's like whenever I go to Pita Pit across the street, you know, I work here, so it's, it's close by. I always, I always order the same thing. For the last 15 years, I always get a gyro. So good. And the truth is there might, there might be a pita that tastes better. I don't know. But I've never been willing to try. I've never cared to try. Because I know that the gyro tastes good to me. And this is not unlike the Pharisees who refuse to order anything but old wine. And in this case, it's the wine of the old covenant, which is based on obedience to the law of Moses. More than that, they also added additional laws and followed oral traditions in order to ensure and help with their strict adherence to the law itself. Again, as I said earlier, this is paramount to them because they think following the law will bring God's salvation. But as we'll learn today, this was never the point of the law. The law was meant to show God's people how to live in covenant with them after they'd been rescued, right? After they'd been taken out of Egypt, as we were learning about in the kids' message, right? The law was meant to show people how to live in covenant with them after they'd been rescued while simultaneously also revealing our sin and the inability to be righteous on our own. So at its foundation, it was always meant to point us to our need for a Savior, namely Jesus. So they completely missed out, of course. They completely missed out on what Jesus was offering, that is, himself, and even became angered by him because they were too dependent on and, and blinded by their own legalistic works and self-righteousness. They were so sure the old wine tasted better, they weren't willing to try the new wine. But first of all, let, let's back up a bit. What does it mean to be legalistic? We throw that word around a lot. What does it mean to be legalistic? The late theologian R.C. Sproul defines it like this. He says, basically, legalism involves abstracting the law of God from its original context. A legalist is concerned with obeying rules and regulations, and they conceive of Christianity, or Judaism, as being a series of do's and don'ts, cold and deadly set of moral principles. Obeying rules and regulations, a series of do's and don'ts, of cold and deadly set of moral principles. All right. But then, that doesn't sound very fun. So, so what actually leads someone to become legalistic like that? What leads someone to become legalistic like that? Well, I've, I've been praying and thinking about it, and, and, and I think we can slide into it for many reasons, but I'm going to list three uh, kind of main reasons or possibilities that we might slip into legalism. And the first one, it's kind of obvious, the first one is pride. First one's pride. So we think we're capable of being good and earning righteousness on our own. Right? This perspective usually leads to self-righteousness and judgmental attitudes toward others. 
So pride. We think we can be like God. Second is faulty theology. The second reason we might slip into legalism is faulty theology. So maybe we've learned or been taught a works-based theology where we think God requires us to follow all the rules in order for him to be pleased with us or so we can get to heaven. We need to be good. We need to do good things to get to heaven, right? On the other hand, maybe we have a fear-based theology where we think that if we don't follow all the rules, God will smite us with his wrath. Right? So either way, faulty theology, whether it's a works-based theology or a fear-based theology or a combination of the two, that's one re- another reason we might slip into legalism. And the third one actually is the, the opposite of pride. So pride's over here. You swing the pendulum all the way over here. The third reason is a sense of unworthiness. A sense of unworthiness where we think, where, where even if we think God loves us, we don't think he could ever like us. Whether that's because we have too much shame for, for something we've done, or, or whether it's because we have a low opinion of ourselves, like a low self-esteem, or whether it's because we feel guilty if we don't prove ourselves. Therefore, we struggle with fully accepting or, or embracing his unconditional grace placing the burden of trying to make ourselves worthy of his love upon ourselves and what we do, right? So we have the three reasons we might slip into legalism, pride, faulty theology, and a sense of unworthiness. On the other hand, again, in both Judaism and Christianity, obedience to God's commandments is actually meant to be a response to his covenant with us and an identifier of the salvation, grace, and love which we've already been freely given by him. As Adriel Sanchez writes, he says, Christianity isn't a religion of rule-keeping, but a religion of love. Love for the God who lifted us up when we'd broken his law by carrying the burden of perfection on himself. Accepted in Christ, we get to follow God's law from a place of deep gratitude rather than fear of rejection. So again, obedience was never meant or designed to save us. Obedience is actually the fruit of being saved. On that note, one of the the biggest issues with legalism then is that it's a denial or refusal to acknowledge God as the one who saves, right? Legalism gives all the credit and places all the focus on ourselves and what we've done, or what we need to do, or what we think others should do, and it actually distorts the image of God, right? Making him out to be some sort of slave driver or a hard-to-please father who's never impressed or pleased with us. But the narrative of Jesus humbling himself and joining humanity and then dying on the cross in our place shows us a God who's the complete opposite of what legalism teaches, It unquestionably shows us that he loves us and saves us as we are. He came to save us even while we were sinners. We didn't do anything. He did it all for us. As John 3.16 says, most of us know this verse, right? John John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then Romans 5.8 It says, but God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. That's the good news. And, and note that it doesn't say that after we did a bunch of good works, then God felt we were ready to be saved. No, while we were still sinners, he died for us. And you can see, you can see that picture in the, what we learn in the kids' message too, right? While, while they were still slaves in Egypt, God rescued them. What did they do? Nothing. God did everything. While we were still sinners, he died for us. God already accepts us and loves us by grace, not through works. He proved it and accomplished it through Jesus. And this is pretty much the underlining message from the passage this morning. Think about it. Each and every time the Pharisees challenged Jesus against the rules and traditions and their legalism, what's Jesus' response to them? He tells them, I'm the groom. I'm the new wine. I'm the new garment. I'm the Lord. I'm the healer. I'm the Savior. That's what he tells them. The Pharisees spend all their effort on trying to get to God and impress God and impress others with their own works, and yet all the while the way to righteousness is right in front of them, in the flesh. He's already there. At another point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus tells the Pharisees, uh, as recorded in John 5, 38, he says, you don't have his word, you don't have the Father's word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Basically, he's telling them here, stop looking to yourselves or, 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 or to others' opinions of you for glory. Stop trusting in your legalism and, and your works of the law, which can't save you, and instead, look to me. His point, the scriptures, the law, the prophets, they all point to the promise of Jesus and our need for Jesus. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. He is our salvation. But legalism is deceptive, right? Legalism is deceiving, though. It gives off the appearance of holiness and piety, where, where we not only fool others, but we can fool ourselves. And we confuse busyness for holiness, and this is how and why we often fall into its trap. The Pharisees actually had actually mastered the art of fooling themselves and others by, by making a show of their religious works and pious actions. In fact, Jesus had their hypocrisy in mind when he warns his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And if you read the rest of the passage, you'll, you'll find that he then gives similar warnings about the Pharisees make a show of giving to the needy and praying loudly in public and contorting their faces when they fast, right? Just so everyone notices how awesome they are. But Jesus tells them that everyone noticing will be their only reward because God's not impressed with their show of piety and legalism. That's not what he asks of us. He desires a humble, thankful, and contrite heart. And so I think we need to watch ourselves as well as the church, right? We, we need to check our hearts, so to speak, 
to make sure we're being obedient for the right reasons. Because he does call us to obedience. But from, from that perspective of being loved, kind of him working in us through the power of his Holy Spirit, right? So we need to watch ourselves, making sure we're being obedient for the right reasons. As R.C. Sproul again writes, because Christianity is concerned with morality, righteousness, and ethics, we can easily make that subtle move from a passionate concern for godly morality into legalism if we are not careful. And I think a lot of the times we're not careful. So on that end, I, I want to point out five Five signs of, there's more, right? I'm just going to point out five signs of legalism that we can watch out for in our own lives. You know, warning signs. Things that we see the Pharisees exhibiting from this passage that I think we can often exhibit as well. Remember, not to shame you, but so that if you see those things in yourself, we can repent and come back to Jesus. All right, the first sign that we might exhibit, that we see the Pharisees exhibiting, is a lack of joy. A lack of joy. Have you ever met a legalist or ardent rule follower who was happy? I don't think so. I, I've never have. They're always so worried about breaking the rules, about not breaking the rules, and, and feeling guilty whenever they're not working. They can't rest. They can't sit down, right? And they're always focused on controlling or judging others or looking down on others, right? They, they might be smug, and they might be self-righteous and bossy and impressed with themselves, like an older sibling, but they're, they're never happy, Right? Not surprisingly, the Pharisees are pretty upset about seeing Jesus and his disciples enjoying themselves at Levi's banquet. And they're upset because they themselves were a pious bunch who, who adopted many forms of asceticism, which means severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. So, in other words, they felt that true piety and following God meant giving up all pleasures and having no fun at all. And it's obvious from them that legalism is a burdensome killjoy. It's what the Apostle Paul calls submitting yourself to a yoke of slavery. Which is why Jesus tells them, hey, I'm the bridegroom. And this is like a wedding. I can't make, I can't make the guests at the wedding starve. This is a time of, of celebration and joy. A life in Christ is meant to be a joy-filled life. It's not always an easy life, but it's always a joy-filled life. 1 Peter 1, 8-9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So to be a Christian is to be filled with an everlasting joy in Christ, a joy of gratitude, knowing that we're saved by God and loved by God because of who He is, a joy of the Lord that in turn gives us strength to obey, to, to persevere in faith and overflow with hope, which means that, that if we find ourselves just going through the motions of church, if we find ourselves begrudgingly serving others or, or struggling to obediently live out the Christian life, 
You know, if volunteering or, or being obedient to God just feels like a chore or like slavery or like work that we have to do so that we don't disappoint others or so that we don't get in trouble with the boss, chances are we've slipped into legalism. It's a warning sign, which leads us to the second sign of legalism they portray. And that's one of judgment and comparison. Judgment and comparison. When we compare and judge others by how they measure up to us. For example, again, as Jesus and his disciples dined with the tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees questioned them, saying, how come the Pharisees and even John's disciples fast and pray, but you don't? So in essence, they're saying, how come you don't look and act like us? Deeper still, what they really mean is you're not really holy or godly unless you look like us and fast and pray as much as we do. Right? There's some ego in their question. And they did, in fact, fast a lot. Even though the law from the Old Testament only required Israelites to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees, I guess, in order to look more holy or pious, they added to that law with their own extra laws and traditions which stated that they should fast every Sabbath and on every Monday and Thursday of the week. So they fasted a lot. And I guess going above and beyond the law of God made them feel morally superior. And it seems they felt it gave them the right, from their perspective, to judge and correct others who weren't as pious or lawful as them. They're looking at others and saying, we're better than them because we do more than them, right? This is self-righteous superiority at its worst. But grace, grace, on the other hand, reminds us that we boast in Jesus alone, right? Because he did all the work for us on our behalf, which means comparing ourselves with others is pointless because we're all sinners saved by him, right? We might be in different stages of maturity, absolutely, as Christians, but none of us is ever better or morally superior than the other. And so if you find yourself thinking or praying as the Pharisees do, thanking God you're a better Christian or morally superior than the next guy, chances are you've drifted into legalism. I was thinking of making this sermon kind of like, you know you're a redneck if, you know, you know you're a legalist if, but my wife didn't think that was very funny. This leads us to the third sign, forcing your rules and traditions on others. I think Christians are really guilty of this one, forcing your rules and traditions on others. So you've probably noticed that the Pharisees, again, quite frequently try to correct or force not only God's law, but extra religious rules and traditions on others as well. And in a similar scenario, Jesus tells the Pharisees from Mark 7, 6 to 9, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God, in order to establish your tradition. 
And as I said, I, I think as Christians, we, we can get caught up in doing this as well. Known to hold to traditions or opinions just as tight as we hold on to God's Word. Or we've been known to create extra-biblical rules for ourselves, which we then try to project onto others. If you ever got caught up in the I Kiss Dating Goodbye craze in the late 90s, then you probably did that. Right? Or, for example, say a believer with a past history of being tempted by alcohol creates a personal rule for themselves to never enter a pub or a liquor store because in their mind, alcohol is evil. And that's fine. That's a good personal rule for them to have. Avoid temptation. Great. Good for them. Right? But where it gets problematic is when they start demanding this rule upon others as if it's a requirement of faith. They become convinced that, that, that every Christian should follow their example as well to the point of thinking that anyone who drinks alcohol or has a sip of wine is a bad person or isn't actually saved. Another example, when I was a kid, everyone dressed up for church. Right? You go to church in, in a suit and tie or in summer dresses or whatever. That's a nice idea. That's fine. But the problem was that over time, it actually became a subject of contention and was even considered disrespect against God if you showed up in jeans. Uh-oh. R.C. Sproul again writes, when we use these human policies to bind the conscience in an ultimate way and make such policies determinative of one's salvation, we venture dangerously into territory that is God's alone. Right, so therefore, if, if, we, if we find ourselves doing this, if we find ourselves trying to religiously correct others, especially if, if, if we're enforcing rules or traditions that Jesus or the Word of God didn't mandate, it's just something that we've always done, right? then we've most likely drifted into legalism. This leads us to the fourth sign of legalism, which they portray that we have to watch out for. Number four, becoming so focused on following the rules, they forget to spend time with the one they're doing it for. When the Pharisees questioned Jesus and his disciples about gathering food for themselves on the Sabbath, they're so twisted up and angry about how they think these guys are breaking the law that they forget what and who the Sabbath is all about. Right? They've isolated the law from the God who gave the law. Jesus says elsewhere that the Sabbath was given for man and not for God. It's, it's meant to be a gift, a, a day of restoration, a day we can stop working and rest in the presence and provision of God, which is why he uses the example of David taking the bread from the temple. Right? This is a day of rest and provision from God. But like every other law and tradition, they, they turn this gift into a work. Right? They also added more regulations to it just to ensure they didn't break it, which actually turned it into more work and even more of a burden. The irony here is they, they spent so much effort in trying to keep the Sabbath that they didn't even spend it with God, which is the whole point. As Jesus reminds them, hello, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And, and he, implies, he implies many things in this statement, that he was there when, when the first Sabbath was created. 
as the Son of God. And also that, that since he has authority over the law, he knows the correct interpretation of it. So who are they to question him? Right? But I think the main point here is that Sabbath was created, again, to find rest and provision in God, and Jesus is the source of it. He's the Lord of it. He was right there. But the Pharisees were so busy with works and correcting others, as they always do, they missed out on the rest and provision available in Jesus. The very same rest and provision the disciples were experiencing. And this is a reminder that we can get so caught up in following the rules and doing the works and being busy for Jesus or restricting ourselves for Jesus that we actually forget that the whole point of it all is to be with Jesus and for him to do his good works in us. We can get so caught up in legalism that we miss out on grace, so busy with doing for God that we forget about being with God so caught up in the rules that we make them more important than being with Jesus himself. And finally, this leads us to the fifth and similar type of legalism they exhibit in this passage, which is putting the letter of the law before the spirit of the law. Putting the letter of the law before the spirit of the law. So this means being, being so concerned with, with following the rules that we actually forget why the rule exists in the first place. So, for example, bear with me here. Say, say you're shopping in the supermarket, and like a good citizen, you're following those directional arrows that were placed on the floor for COVID regulations, but then the fire alarm goes off. Of course, the quickest way to the exit is, is to go back down the aisle you came from. But then an employee cuts you off. He stops you and says, no, you have to follow the arrows. Right? And then he sends you back up the aisle towards the fire and away from the exit. So that's putting the letter of the law before the spirit of the law. Because the spirit of that law is to help save lives, right? But, but in his commitment to keep the rules that this employee actually puts your life in danger. Right? In, in the last in, in encounter we read about today, Jesus is about to heal a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees are so wound up with, with Jesus supposedly working on the Sabbath again that they, that they were willing and ready to keep this man from being healed. They cared so much about the rules, they didn't care at all about this man. And so before he heals the man, Jesus actually challenges the Pharisees. Luke 5, 9, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? So Jesus is pointing out the irony and hypocrisy here, that the Pharisees were the ones actually breaking the Sabbath and doing evil against God by refusing to give life to others and actually plotting against Jesus. Because Ultimately, again, Sabbath, like, like all God's laws, all works, all calls to obedience, they're all about honoring God, right? And when would refusing to help someone in need ever be considered honoring to God? Never. They're putting the letter of the law 
before the spirit of the law. Again, they're so focused on following the external or literal, literal rules and parameters that they've set around themselves that they've thrown out the heart of the matter and any true desire to honor God. I can't help you. I'm doing my Sabbath. That's not what Sabbath is about. But this lesson or application isn't just for Sabbath, though. We need to make sure that being obedient and, and committed to our Christian customs and practices don't become so self-serving and legalistic to the point that doing them becomes more important than the spirit behind them, more important than the purpose behind them, right? which is to love God and love others. What does Jesus say about those two commandments? All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love God and love others. That is the point. And so if we're doing these laws, but not loving God and love, loving others, we're putting the, spirit of the, or the letter of the law before the spirit of the law. Finally, and in conclusion then, we need to remember that legalism and grace don't mix. They were never meant to. And this is what Jesus means when he says in Luke 5, 36 to 39. He also told them a parable. He says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. But Jesus came to offer us a new covenant, right? He came to make all things new. And the good news is that nothing else is required. He didn't come to, to patch things up or refill us, right? That doesn't work. He didn't come to add on to our own good works or good deeds, that doesn't work either. He, didn't, he doesn't require us to add on to his. No, the, the good news is that Jesus came to make all things new, came to make us new, and to accomplish it himself in his life, death, and resurrection. As some say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And now he freely invites us into a new covenant that's based on grace, not legalism. A covenant based on unconditional love and freedom, not slavery or works. A covenant that invites us to joyfully feast at his table, not beg for scraps. A covenant that gives us eternal security and true rest and knowing we're already accepted in the eyes of God through Jesus, which actually frees us from worrying about ourselves so that we can selflessly and joyfully serve God and others with hearts of gratitude. This is a new covenant that's been signed and sealed by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ, for all who repent and believe in his name by faith. This is the new wine poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So now let, let's come to the table together. Let's come to the table now and joyfully and thankfully feast on this new wine together. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, Lord, that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of love. Lord, who loved us even while we were sinners, even while we were going astray, Lord God. You sent your Son, your one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to take our place, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, and then to take the judgment of our sin upon ourselves at the cross. His body was broken in our place. His blood was shed in our place, Lord. Let us not forget this act of love and grace, and I pray that we, we live in response to that love and grace. knowing that that you love us, not by what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Lord, fill us with that, that security and that joy of our salvation that we may go forth as a church and, and, and serve you and serve one another from that place, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.